0: A few private companies have reached out to us to express concern about several I.O. campaigns that's are uh, surrounding their brand. We are also helping them to take a look and we realise that there is indeed impact to private sector as well from the I.O. front. It is no longer just limited to elections or country versus country kind of sentiments. Sometimes as part of the story, they try to create against another adversary country. Inevitably, private sectors are being brought into the picture and even mentioned or or even leaders from private sectors could be quoted saying statements that they did not make as part of the narrative that these two campaigns are trying to propagate, for example.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Defenders Advantage podcast. I am your host, Luke McNamara. I am pleased to be joined today by a returning guest that we've had on here before, Yi Hao Lim, our Intelligence Strategy Lead in APJ. Ehow, great to have you today. Thank you, Luke. Thank you for the invite. Happy to be here. Well, it's it's always a busy time in your region when it comes to cyber threats and what's going on in the security landscape. There's a couple of things that you know recently have been some interesting geopolitical shifts uh, mm-hmm. that we'll get into. But maybe where I'll start with the uh, the conversation today is our uh, IO team has done a real excellent job. I think this year in covering down a range of different networks and campaigns of IO actors two in particular though that i think have been very interesting to kind of witness evolve and emerge have been the dragon bridge activity set and then the more recent set of activity that we've reported on high energy mm-hmm. um Both of those, you know, engaged in, it seems to be sponsoring sort of pro-PRC narratives in different ways. High Energy, actually, uh, that we were able to link to an entity engaged in the campaigns and setting up of, you know, fabricated news organizations. But I wanted to get your take on, you know, with the revelations around these particular networks and campaigns, how do you think that is shifting... How organizations, and maybe especially in the private sector, think about disinformation campaigns in the region? Yeah, I think that's a great question and my um, customers and partners in region
0: as well. So historically, everybody thinks that, you know, information operations is only, you know, the concern of the government because it's uh, it can be used to influence elections. It can be used to influence voters. Um, but actually, recently, we have seen that uh, influence of operations have kind of expanded in terms of their impact and in terms of the targeting as well. So as you mentioned earlier, the high energy campaign that we recently published on our Mandiam blog, um, it also talks about how a private company is being contracted by Chinese state-sponsored organizations to propagate certain narratives. And it's not all the time about US, anti US, or pro PRC. Sometimes it's about other stuff like saying that US are funding biolabs, which is linked to COVID, uh, mentioned about uh, the alleged mistreatment of the Uyghurs, you know, so some, and even Chinese dissidents as well. So the, the topics that are involved uh, can be very broad. And private companies should also be aware because if you are a high-profile company or you have a big business or, or broad business base across multiple regions in the world, your company name or your company product could be implicated in one of these narratives. And it's hard for us to speculate at this point, but you know there's a chance that if you're a listed company and there is this narrative spreading about something that's related to your company, which is not true, could have a negative impact on your stock price and brand reputation, etc. So there are already a few private companies that reached out to us to express concern about um, several I.O. campaigns that's uh, surrounding their brand. And we are also helping them to take a look and we realized that there is indeed, in the, uh, you know, impacts to private sector as well from the I.O. front. Uh, it is no longer just limited to elections or, um, you know, country versus country kind of sentiments. Sometimes as part of the story, they try to create uh, against another adversary country, inevitably, private sectors are being brought into the, the picture and even mentioned, or, or even uh, leaders from private sectors could be quoted saying statements that they did not make, you know, as part of the narrative that, was that these two campaigns are trying to propagate, for example.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And especially mm-hmm. with the Dragon Bridge activity set, the activity around the rare earth mining sector, mm-hmm. a sector that, that China is very well uh, involved in and has a, a pretty large market share. It was interesting to see them use this capability and maybe we kind of contrast it with how they've used cyber espionage in the past, you know, sort of leapfrog or advance their technical capability to uh, conduct theft of IP. Here they're using uh, a different tool in cyber, information operations, to sort of attack uh, these other competitors in the market. Yeah. So I think that was definitely one one piece that was really interesting about that campaign. And with the high energy one, just the, the volume and range of those news sites that we saw uh, was interesting to witness. It shows just like the extent to which they're involved in, in kind of pushing narratives in, in many different countries and regions. Correct, and and
0: they also expressed, you know, a lot of ambition to expand their operations to not just you know the traditional so called enemies of China. You know, they are now doing campaigns in Arabic and in French, Hindi, Italian, Korean, Russian, Thai, Ukrainian, and even Vietnamese. So you can see that the the, the ambition is global. They 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 don't have a, a limited scope, and as long as there's anything that is um, of concern or of interest to the the regime uh, it's highly likely that this will be leveraged as a tool because bear in mind information operations are not really a hack they do not try to um, implant malware or or spread you know malicious files but it's just that the information is being structured and and propagated to the audience and if it's like if it's propagated often or commonly enough uh, it might be really taken for the truth so that's the that's the risk out there
1: so, talking about some other geopolitical drivers of activity and how that has maybe changed or altered how organizations that you're talking with, customers in, in both public and private sector, are rethinking mm-hmm. about security, what's been the impact of Russia's invasion in Ukraine? And, you know, it, I mean, I think in, in Europe and in the Americas, rightly so, there's been a lot of focus and concern around escalation and blowback. Um, mm-hmm. Are you seeing kind of a similar rethinking around security or rethinking around the risk of this conflict in APJ?
0: Oh, definitely. So I think this is another good question that, that that you raised, because historically Russian actors are not so active in Asia Pacific as compared to other areas like US or you know Europe. Just just by just by virtue of the the geopolitical situation. The, the concentration of their forces and campaigns are on these other regions outside of APEC. But in this case, the Russia-Ukraine war, there was a period where a lot of countries in Asia-Pacific are putting on sanctions on Russia because everyone is opposed to the way this whole thing was being conducted. The invasion was illegal. And, and in response, Russian government actually listed out a couple of Asian countries as uh, unfriendly. And this actually rattled some, uh, ruffled some feathers over here in APEC because people are aware that Russian government-backed uh, forces, you know, espionage actors have a tendency to do retaliation kinds of attacks. The case in point would be, PyeongChang Olympics, you know, uh, when the Russian athletes were being sanctioned and being banned from attending, uh, Russian actors actually did something to the opening ceremony, which which caused spectators to be unable to join and participate in opening ceremony. And they even tried to pin it on North Korea. So these kinds of uh, retaliation attacks is something that, you know, they are capable of, they've done before. And we know that the sophistication level is high. That's why many Asian countries that were, especially those that were named under the unfriendly countries uh, under the list by published by the Russian government, uh, were concerned uh, and were eager to learn about what kind of tactics techniques and procedures does Russian state actors have. and they were ac- actively uh, discussing uh, you know what are the possible impacts to them. Because I I could be in the critical infrastructure sector in one of the countries that were putting sanctions on Russia and I could be one of the ones that are being sabotaged. So there were a lot of conversation about this and uh, interest in the topic, actually, despite the the war being happening, something uh, so far away from us.
1: Now, I want to ask you also about, you know, mm-hmm. what has been a kind of more immediate geopolitical crisis. You could say the recent tensions between China and, and Taiwan, mm-hmm. some of the things that have come out after uh, Speaker Pelosi's trip, you know, from from the United States over to Taiwan. But but first, before we even get to that, I'm curious around both these topics, uh, Russia and Ukraine and the, the ge- larger geopolitical tensions with Taiwan at the moment. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing more organizations, maybe especially in the private sector, because government is, I think always thinks through this, this lens, the geopolitical lens, okay. but are you seeing more organizations in the private sector in your region start really intensely focus on when there are geopolitical flashpoints or tensions, looking at that as a, as a driver for cyber threat activity in a way that maybe they haven't in the last several years?
0: Um, I would say it's it's kind of uh limited to it, it depends on the size and the business of the the organization so if you're just a you know a small and medium enterprise uh, that is focused on local markets, the war and the geopolitical situation might have only a limited impact on your day to day business. but if you're a manufacturing plant with uh, factories in Ukraine or in areas where there are geopolitical conflicts you know you will be very concerned and and for these companies that are multinational you know they we, they have definitely expressed a lot of concern in these kinds of uh, events uh, but for the smaller uh, outfits that are you know more locally or regionally focused um the the attention is only on regional or local geopolitical tensions or supply chain issues so uh, i think it really depends on the type of organizations out there
1: so we've danced around this topic a couple of times now. Let's let's g- jump into it straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, the activity that we've seen kind of in the lead up to in the aftermath of Speaker Pelosi's trip to, to Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there I know we've, we've seen espionage campaigns. We've seen DDoS attacks, reported DDoS attacks, defacements, sort of the things that you would expect to see, including the pivoting of messaging and narratives from some of those I.O. campaigns we mentioned, those I.O. Uh, activity sets we mentioned earlier. You know, mm-hmm. So we expect to always, you know, we, we see a large volume of activity, I think, historically from Chinese attributed threat actors against Taiwan. Yep. And especially when there's these sorts of, you know, flashpoints of and, and kind of a rise in tensions, you see things like DDoS, you see things like defacement. So what's your kind of take on what we're looking at right now with that? And maybe some of the signposts that you're looking at for if we were to see an escalation of this, what would be some of the early signposts of that?
0: Right. So, um, specifically to the Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, we saw more than 20 cases of actors conducting activism style attack against Taiwan between just 3rd of August to the 7th of August. So there were a lot of low level of sophistication attacks, like like you rightly mentioned, DDoS defacements on Taiwanese targets just to you know protest against that visit. We we don't think that these are linked to state back organizations or like APTs because all these observations are not very coordinated and they are they don't really display that much maturity in terms of the way that they come they, they came about doing these attacks. Most likely they are just leveraging on poorly um secured applications that are internet facing. To, to spread their messaging. So back to the, the observation itself, uh, there were a lot of guys who claimed, there's even one actor who claimed that he's APT27 um, and he claimed that um, they have leaked documents on Taiwanese critical infrastructure. But when we went to investigate those files, it's actually just like high school or college research papers on the critical infrastructure uh, organization that they claim to be compromised. So it's a lot of bogus, Documents that are made up, uh, you know, just to make it sound scary, but in terms of the real, real high impact attacks, uh, we we think that was limited. And you're right, you to also mention that uh, there was already a lot of espionage and cyber attacks or their state back against Taiwan prior to the visit itself. Taiwan is a very, it's a historical, you know, source of tension between China internally. And, you know, when we see the Chinese forces restructure themselves into the theaters of war, uh, the Eastern theater of war uh, is is the one that is in charge of looking after Japan and Taiwan. So APT groups that roll up uh, to this Eastern theater uh, are traditionally also Uh, putting a lot of focus uh, onto Taiwan directly. So we already have seen multiple cases of espionage on multiple organizations in Taiwan. I would say in almost all industry sectors are being targeted, uh, media to government, to finance, to manufacturing, to high-tech manufacturing, to education. Uh, We have seen instances of this happening before, even prior to this visit. So uh, if you ask me, is there any espionage triggered by this visit probably yes uh, but in terms of the the impact visible visibility of the impact coming up uh, it will take some time because espionage attacks are usually very long in nature so it, it it takes some time to for the actor to go into initial compromise to lateral movement to eventually op, uh, achieving the objectives of stealing files or strategic intelligence so that takes you know a cycle of maybe months or even years at times so it's not so visible at this point. If it's really triggered by this visit itself, maybe the the, the so called outcomes of this attack will only be visible uh, by the end of uh, next this year or even next year itself. Yeah, this is this is what I think um, is is linked to this uh, this this activity.
1: Yeah, I think it's very difficult to try to trace to any one. One driver of, uh, you know, potential escalation in overall cyber threat activity against Taiwan. Again, just because we see so much activity, both from PLA groups in the Eastern Theater, as you mentioned, multiple MSS groups as well, Uh, and then they span you know, virtually every critical infrastructure sector and others uh, in Taiwan, too, Exactly. Uh, not just government. So it is difficult to think through, you know, if we were to see an escalation or, you know, hopefully not even, you know, a kinetic escalation, what might be early signposts of that activity. But I think that's something that uh, it seems that from the conversations I've had with, with customers and others, a lot of organizations now with operations in Taiwan are starting to think through, you know, if this is kind of a period of tension and escalation that may play out over the next several years uh, in an increasing manner. What does that look like for risk now? What does that look like for cyber risk going forward? Uh, so, I think a lot of organizations are kind of in that that position right now, where they're thinking through that what that long term outlook looks like.
0: Yeah, for sure, and and we also know that you know like groups like APD Forty One, it's also sometimes um, private organizations that are contracted by government to do. Cyber espionage missions, so the the attribution sometimes becomes even more fuzzy because um, it is not really an army unit or like a or, or like an MSS, but it could be a private sector organization that's hired to do certs, to do missions, much like how the high energy campaign, where private companies are being asked to do tasks or campaigns on behalf of the government. So it's it's sometimes a, a little bit uh, confusing from the defender's perspective when you want to go into attribution. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's Mandy's job to, to really clarify the whole you know uh, gray area and, and to give you the best intel that we have in terms of understanding the bad guys.
1: When it comes to other trends that you're seeing, it may be trends in the threat landscape itself or trends in how organizations that you're interacting with in APJ mm-hmm. Um, how they're thinking about security, how they're thinking about investment in security. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you see that are top of mind to them? Or again, back to the threat landscape, top of mind for you going through the rest of this year?
0: I would say most organizations I talk to here are still very concerned about um, the tactical aspect of threat intel. Um, maybe it's just a matter of uh, awareness, but uh, a lot of them are equating intel to like IOCs. They will ask, um, you know, XYZ events happening, can you give us IOCs for that event? But um, sometimes it is not so uh, easy to to just use IOC to to equate that to Intel because IOCs are something that is easily perishable, all right? Uh, Like a file can be compiled differently and IOC will be different. So if you're too reliant on signature based methods to detect bad, uh, bad guys in your organizations, Uh, that could be a big risk because once the actor changes uh, the tool or the way he compiles the file or the content inside the file is virtually undetected by your endpoint or your a b right so that's one so i I think there's there's still a lot of focus on iocs at this point which is uh, actually a little bit of, uh, of a concern for me because the the focus should be on ttps tactics techniques and procedures. And understanding the motive of actors and what are they after, that that gives us a better idea of who we're up against, not just the IOC's part. So I think that's that's number one. Number two, I think trends in terms of how people perceive Intel is slowly changing. Uh, in the past, um, everybody thinks that uh, Intel can be can be just uh, obtained from open sources or Twitter, uh, but now there's some value uh, that's being uh, communicated to us. You know that they they think Intel good intel that understands the bad guys are something that is valued. So I, I think it, we, are in, we are in the midst of a shift from uh, from you know people not valuing intel to people actually trying to understand what's going on about the actor's background, etc. So hopefully the shift will happen sooner than later and eventually once we are all in, at a level playing field where we, we understand clearly what the actors are about, what their motives are, what their modus operandi are, Uh, organizations here will be a better position to defend against, um, you know, the the threat actors out there.
1: Do you see, you know, improvement or, or some positive trends within the region in terms of information sharing, either between countries or even between organizations within specific sectors where there's a realization that, hey, the visibility that these other outside potential partners have can be useful to understand the threats targeting my organization or my country? Do you see sort of improvements in that information sharing process?
0: Yes, uh, of course.
1: We actually, uh, you know, historically,
0: we have already seen uh, in the finance sector very, very robust information sharing between banks. If you're in the FSI, SEC organization, you know, partner banks can share, threat intel with one another from what they're observing. So that's good. So the government has also taken some of these to create their own initiative. I think Singapore created this uh, ASEAN uh, Cyber Intel Fusion Center where all ASEAN nations are invited to join and there are training courses, there are also information sharing between partner countries um, in terms of the kind of cyber threats that they are seeing. So I think it's a good initiative, a good start for countries over here to uh, be aware that the bad guys are sharing the information about us in forums and marketplaces. We should also be sharing information about how much we know about them to level the playing field. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the, the actors are always innovating faster than the defenders and, and that's something that we were trying to change at this point
1: excellent well you how always great chatting with you and getting your perspective of what's happening within your region all the things that you're following and the conversations that you're having uh, with organizations there as well as keeping a finger on the pulse of what's happening in the threat landscape so always great chatting with you yeah it's my pleasure luke take care bye take care